So I mentioned earlier we have uh, today and next week to close out our uh, Kingdom Come series. Uh, Again, as I mentioned last week, if you uh, are behind in the book or haven't started the book, uh, still read the book, okay? Uh, Give you a great um, kind of framework for our philosophy as a church and just uh, the kingdom framework and how we live that out um, and how that applies to all of life. And so uh, highly recommended if you don't have a copy. I think there's still another one back there. We have some more at home. Uh, I think every household got a copy so far. Um, Last week we talked about um, being sons and daughters and how we are... um, only children of God through Jesus, that we become children of God through Christ, uh, that yes, we're all, all humans are God's creation, and he, uh, he loves his creation, uh, and yet uh, scripture refers to those who are in Christ as the children of God. Um, that means that we've been adopted, as I mentioned uh, a moment ago, that this adoption comes with full sonship, and this is not a slight on on daughters, but in the context of Scripture, the sonship meant that the adopted sons received a full inheritance. And so both sons and daughters of God in Christ receive the full inheritance of the kingdom, are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Uh, We have access. We have unlimited, 24-7, all access uh, to the amazing, infinite, all-powerful God of the universe. And so that is something that comes with being a child of God. Pretty amazing. We're also commissioned as ambassadors for the kingdom. And so we've got this mission to live out uh, representing God's kingdom, pointing people to God's kingdom. Uh, and then we talked about how that identity is unshakable. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can change the fact that we are sons and daughters of the king. Uh, and so that gives us confidence. That gives us a victory that Christ has already secured, even though we face trials and tragedies and go through things that are difficult. We know that eternally we are secure and our identity is unshakable. So that was last week. This morning, we'll continue to look at our roles as kingdom people and the fact that we are sojourners and exiles. So our call to worship referenced this. We heard that we are still sojourners and exiles. I say still because our text this morning is an Old Testament passage, but the call to worship was a New Testament passage. So in case you're thinking we're not sojourners and exiles anymore based on Jeremiah, which we'll talk about, uh, we are because First Peter in the New Testament also said we are, as believers, uh, we're foreigners, we're aliens, we're sojourners, we're exiles in this world. Um, this world is not our home. Philippians 3.20 says our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, and yet we still reside here, right? We are physically still on this broken world. Treat referred to this as our dual citizenship in the book, being spiritually citizens of the kingdom, uh, but living here and now on this earth that is still broken and, and longing for redemption, awaiting the return of Jesus when he will make all things new, right, and create this uh, new earth for us. It will be a better, more fulfilling fit for us than anything that we have ever experienced or think we can find in this world. Uh, The thing that we long for but can't find in this world, the new earth and eternity with Christ, will fulfill that. C.S. Lewis reasoned it this way. Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for these desires exists. He goes on to write, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. So if I have a longing or desire in myself, there must be satisfaction for that desire. And if I can't find that satisfaction in this world, then it must be in another world. And that's just a philosophy that C.S. Lewis um, was 
uh, writing about as he uh, was experiencing Christianity and kind of discovering Christianity. Um, not that he discovered it, but for himself, if, if that makes sense. As he realized the truth of Christianity, um, <clears throat> that's what he stumbled upon. We were made for another world. We were created for eternity. And we were created for eternity uh, to worship God for eternity. And we were created for the kingdom of heaven. So what does that look like in the meantime? We talk about this all the time, right? We have a kingdom framework. We seek the kingdoms, our first value, uh, and missio Dei. So what does that mean if we're not in the new earth and we're supposed to live in this broken world, uh, the not yet part of the kingdom that we live in as sojourners and exiles? Uh, Well, God's word speaks to this. And so let's look at Jeremiah 29, 4 through 9. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 9. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So the context of these verses has God's people displaced from Jerusalem to Babylon, Uh, literally in exile, physically in exile from the place that they had established um, for themselves, uh, that God had put them in. They're in a pagan land, an unbelieving anti-God place. But all believers today live in exile in the sense that our allegiance is to heaven, our real home. And we're not there yet. So we're not living in our forever home, the place we are created for. Earth, in this sense, is our Babylon, right? If we look at the context of Jeremiah and look at it today and say, they're in exile in Babylon, we're in exile in this world, this broken world around us. We live as exiles until God calls us home out of this world. Uh, With that being said, the first things I want to mention for God's people in exile are the two big temptations, which we find in uh, Treat's book, that living in exile can create our temptations in exile. The first one is separation. The first temptation we face in exile is the temptation to separate. This is different than living distinctly from the ways of the world uh, while living in the world, and we'll look at that more later. What we're talking about here is the temptation to cut off relationships with the lost people around us, to try to live in kind of a Christian bubble uh, that never interacts with the world around us. An extreme example of this would be uh, you know, straight up compound living, off the grid, growing all your own food, never engaging outsiders, um, etc. Uh, this would be like, spoiler alert, The Village, M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, a very old movie. Sometimes I feel like, oh, I can't ruin the ending, but these movies have been out for a long time. Um, so I'm not worried about it. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, there's a group of families uh, who are in this mysterious village, and the setting seems like it's very old. Um, and there's this mysterious monster that kind of guards the village so no one can ever leave. Uh, well, at the very end of the movie, you find out this is a pe- group of people in the like 60s or 70s who decided to kind of just cut themselves off from outside civilization uh, because they were just worried about the effects, the, the culture, the, uh, how things would ruin them and their future generations. And so they just kind of cut themselves off from society, started their own society. Um, and the monster was just 
the parents trying to keep the kids from being too curious, basically. Uh, but basically, they were, wanted to reset, right? They wanted to kind of make their own, uh, almost their new earth, right? They decided that we are the ones who will get this new, uh, this new culture. We're not interested in bringing any outsiders into this to share uh, you know, our wonderful views with them and how we believe life should be lived. We just we cut it off um, and set it up for ourselves. <clears throat> this is not what God has called us to. Uh, this is an extreme end of the spectrum. That was fictional, and yet we see this in some uh, extreme uh, faiths, religions, and cults uh, that would cut themselves off from the outside world in such a way. Um, and that's not what God has called us to, uh, not that kind of separation. Most people, and I would say hopefully all the people in this room, are not considering these extremes, uh, but we're still tempted to separate in other ways um, that might reduce our engagement with the wit- or our witness uh, to those who are far from God. Because this attitude works its way into our minds and our behaviors in a variety of ways. And uh, I just want to give us some things to think about here. I'm not judging, not condemning. I'm guilty of this as well. Um, But consider. Consider where we spend our time, uh, our money, our effort. Um, Weigh the options when you're looking to kind of uh, hire someone or a service for something. Um, You know, do I go, I find a Christian business so I can pay a Christian and uh, support a Christian brother in their endeavors? Uh, Or do I find the person who's best suited for the job and uh, can do it really well? Uh, Or maybe they charge a little bit more, but there's chance for a relationship, right, with someone who's lost that I might be able to uh, minister to them. I'm not saying you should always do one or the other. I'm just saying, do we think about these things? Um, I know that there's factors when you're hiring somebody. You want to trust them. You want somebody who's going to be honest and dependable. Uh, I recommend, you know, Christian graphic designers for certain things, uh, stuff like that, uh, Christian police officers, right? Um, but and there's a sense sometimes where we can say, look, if I only do business with other believers, I only hire other believers, all that kind of stuff, um, we may not have interaction. We're missing out on ministry potential and definitely miss, missing out on some evangelism potential there um, if we don't consider that. <clears throat> also, just socially, right? I know it's easier. Uh, it's usually less messy to spend our social time with other Christians. Uh, but there's still potential uh, for ministry, certainly for witness, uh, if we get to know and hang out with people who are far from God. Um, just some things to think about, right? We'll dig into uh, this influence that we can have on others a little bit later, but uh, that's a temptation we face, is to separate uh, and cut ourselves off from the unbelieving world. Uh, The second temptation we face as sojourners and exiles is to assimilate. So the first temptation is to separate. The second temptation is to assimilate. Assimilate is just to become a part of, just to seamlessly blend in and become a part of something else. So if separation is cutting ourselves off, then assimilation is living uh, indiscernibly from the world around us, not just uh, embracing the people who are far from God, but their values, their idols, their priorities, their goals, their standards, uh, and becoming just like them, living no differently than them. Again, there's kind of a path of least resistance here, Um, just like there's kind of a path of least resistance sometimes with saying, man, it's just easier to hang out with with my church friends. Uh, I totally get that. Um, there's also kind of a path of least resistance in saying, well, I'm, I'm just going to kind of go with the flow uh, with my non-Christian friends because it's just easier. Uh, this temptation pulls on us, right, to, to blend in, to not stand out, to not be ostracized, to not look different or weird. Um, <clears throat> practically, sometimes we, we cannot separate, right, and so it's easier to just kind of assimilate, to kind of go with the flow. 
Um, the next thing you know, we're no different than the unbelieving people around us. It's natural for us to want to do this, to fit in, uh, or at least it's natural to not um, want to stand out. Um, we don't want to be embarrassed or ostracized, uh, but sometimes this can be dangerous. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the, the What Would You Do segments on TV, uh, but I remember seeing one where they filled a room with extras, and so maybe it's like a workplace or a library or something, and everybody in there is an actor except for one person, and you know the, he's the subject, and so they've got hidden cameras watching him. And then smoke starts like coming into the room under the door, and all the paid people are just ignoring it. They act like it's not there, it's not a problem, nothing's wrong. Uh, they just keep going about their business, and it starts to like accumulate quite a bit. And the people, the subject, would kind of like think like, "Why? I am, like this is wrong. This is not right. This is not normal." Um, but some of them would just be so worried about standing out or looking weird that they just ignored it too. Like, I guess this is normal. This is just what happens. This is not uh, an issue. And so different people had different resolve or, or reactions to these situations where they would um, either say something like, this, that's not right, I'm out of here, or, okay, yeah, I'm just going to breathe this smoke like everybody else, like we're all in this together. Um, and that was a case kind of, of inaction, right? It's easier just to stay silent and kind of accept what's happening, go with the flow. Um, but they also did an, an experiment <clears throat> where they were asking, and I wish I could remember the questions, but they had almost kind of like a focus group. Um, and again, everybody's an actor except for one person. And they start asking these questions, and they're super simple, super, super simple questions. And everybody's answering completely wrong, but keep playing like this is normal and this is serious and, you know... And so they'd get to the, the non-actor person, and they were just under this extreme pressure to also answer incorrectly, because they didn't want to feel different than everyone around them. Uh, or if they had just strong convictions, they're like, ah, you all are crazy, they would say the right answer. But it was interesting to see this, this pressure, this, um, this temptation that we feel to just say, I, don't, I, want, I want to fit in. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to be looked at as different for the wrong reasons. Um, <clears throat> and so there's either inaction, right, or there is a, a time to speak up. There's a challenge of saying, are you going to say the right thing? Uh, I don't know if you've seen this picture. This photo was taken in 1936. Um, I've never seen the context to this week of this picture. Uh, it was at a, a shipyard, um, I'm assuming the, the Nazi Navy or German Navy, uh, and they have just kind of launched a ship that they built. These are all... Um, Shipyard workers, and then the front row is like Nazi officers. And they're all giving this uh, Nazi salute, except for this guy right here. I don't know if you can see him. Kind of arms crossed. We have a zoomed-in picture of him. And so a lot of the times the meme going around is, is be this guy, right? Um, be like this guy. Just, just because the crowd is doing something doesn't mean you have to do it. Um, and back then, the context of this picture, the history that surrounds this, uh, in especially in those places where it's the dominant view, uh, how strong the pressure would have been um, to go along with that and to act like you support that and to not want to stand out. Uh, and yet this guy was like, no, I'm not doing it. Uh, there's some discrepancy on the actual like reasoning and who the person is to identify him. Um, one of them, uh, well, it, both of them were... <laughs> Either one guy who disagreed with Nazis uh, or another guy who disagreed with Nazis, right? Um, 
So it wasn't just like a, a blind person who didn't know that they were saluting or something like that. Um, they're both stories of, of men who had convictions that were saying, I'm not going to do this uh, based on my own convictions. Um, and so imagine the, the, the powerful temptation, right, to assimilate, uh, especially the threat of danger in some of these situations. Uh, and how often do we really face that kind of pressure or danger when we're called to kind of stand out? Uh, or biblically, consider Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3, who refused to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar's statue or foreign gods. They were threatened with death by fiery furnace, and they accepted that threat. Uh, and I love the way it reads that they, they don't say, they don't just say our God will save us. They say our God will save us, but even if he does not, we will not bow down. And I love that. That they're not just saying this kind of prosperity mindset of like, we're going to do the right thing and God will save us. Their mindset of faith is our God can save us and we know he's the one true God. And so he either will save us, but even if he doesn't, he's still the God that we worship. And of course, they're thrown into the furnace. God does save them. Um, that's another story for another day. Um, it's a powerful temptation though, right, that calls us to conform. God knows this. God speaks to this. Um, in Jeremiah 29, 8 and 9, he mentions not being deceived by the voices of the land or the other voices not sent by him. When he says, don't let your prophets deceive you, your diviners deceive you, and don't listen to their dreams if I didn't send them. Um, Paul uh, exhorts us against assimilation in Romans 12, 2, when he writes, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so the patterns of the world are strong, and they are loud voices in our lives. And Scripture is consistent, saying, do not conform. Do not assimilate, right? We are in this world, but not of this world. We're called to something different. God has us here in this place at this time. It uh, doesn't look like he wants us to completely separate ourselves, right, and cut ourselves off from the world. He certainly doesn't want us to assimilate and adopt all the ways of the world, living no differently than the world. So what is the way of God in exile? Well, with God's kingdom comes a kingdom way, which is usually different than what the world would offer or expect. And we'll find our kingdom way by considering our calling in exile. Our calling in exile. What is our calling in exile? We can see here in Jeremiah 29, starting in verse 5. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat the produce, multiply Seek the welfare of the city where God has sent us. Pray to the Lord on behalf of this place where I live. And don't listen to the voices that are not from God. This doesn't sound like separation or assimilation. It's living for the Lord in exile. Be where you are. And not just exist where you are, but flourish where you are. Pursue the flourishing of your community. Don't be afraid to put down roots. Bring value to your neighborhood. Bless your neighbors. In other words, pursue the kingdom in places where people don't yet recognize the reign of God. It's often difficult and messy, just like the rest of the Christian life. It's often difficult and messy, but it's fulfilling because it is in line with God's will and his calling on our lives. In fact, the often quoted promise found in Jeremiah 29, 11, that God has plans for us, right? Plans for our welfare, plans for a hope and a future and not for evil. It's in the same chapter that we're reading right now about exile. So Jeremiah 29, 11, this like, congratulations, graduate, and uh, all these different things that you find it on coffee mugs, and God has great plans for you, and it's very encouraging. The context of it is, I have plans for your future, but right now, you're going to spend decades in exile 
and persecution. This is usually not what people have in mind when they claim that verse. Like, all the plans that God has for me are good, and so I just want to claim that promise and just, here's the good plans that God has for me. God's trying to get us to think eternally, right? We don't think about Jeremiah 29, kind of 1 through 10, when we claim Jeremiah 29, 11. Years and years of exile. What God has in mind is to grow our faith amidst trials and tribulations. Not by having us hunker down with an us versus them culture war mentality, but a how can I bring value to my community and pursue the welfare of my city while staying faithful to God. And just like we discussed with pursuing justice, we aren't to be neutral and stay out of things. We're to have a distinct transformational presence in this world. This is faithfulness in exile, not just be quiet and don't make waves. Our presence and our devotion to the kingdom should make an impact. Treat writes that faithfulness in exile means to be set apart from the city while being present within the city. He goes on to say, wherever you are, be present. Let your light shine. Seek the peace of the city that God has called you to in this season of life. I mentioned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from Daniel 3, refusing to assimilate. We also have the example of Daniel himself in the book of Daniel, who worked for the good of the place he found himself in, and yet living distinctly from them, refusing to defile himself by eating the king's food, and later continuing to pray to the one true God, despite it being made illegal and punishable by death. This is where we get Daniel in the lion's den. He was in a place, a foreign place, an unbelieving place, and yet he stayed faithful to God despite the threat against him. He had a transformational distinct presence there. This is present in the world, but still distinct or set apart from it. How else will the church impact the world? How can light be effective if it never encounters darkness? We're called to holiness, right? You shall be holy as I am holy. God said this in Leviticus 11, and Peter quotes it again in 1 Peter 1. So again, it's not this, that's an Old Testament verse. That doesn't apply to us. Peter calls on it. He calls back on it, right? And he says, God said, you are to be holy as I am holy. Holy means set apart. It doesn't mean geographically set apart. It doesn't mean to cut yourself off from the places around you. It means your purpose is set apart. You've been repurposed in Christ, completely other. Your purpose, your goal, your aim in life, your identity is other than everyone around you because you are holy in Christ Jesus. And our holiness, our reason for living, the meaning of life for us in Christ should be on display for everyone to see. And I've said this before, uh, but there should be a a peculiarity to us as believers. We should be a little weird for the right reasons, all right, for the right reasons. It's a little off to remain hopeful and joyful amidst tragedy. It's a little off to give our hard-earned money to the church. It's strange to love our enemies and turn the other cheek. It's Odd to devote so much time to being with our spiritual family and prioritizing them and living sacrificially and selflessly. We should not sacrifice this distinction on the altar of relevance. Should we engage those far from God and cultivate relationships with them? Absolutely. But should we compromise our convictions to avoid offending their values? Absolutely not. Our views in Christ on the unborn, on immigrants, on gender, on marriage, on social justice, etc. They're not determined by us or the voices of the land or the world around us. 
our views on these things have been determined by the Lord. That's why God warns us in Jeremiah 29 to not listen to the voices that he didn't send. There are a lot of voices vying for our attention. A lot of voices representing different platforms, different beliefs, different views that are contradictory to the ways of God. This is called pluralism. Treat refers to this in the book. He says we need to recognize pluralism because we need to be aware that there are multiple sources of authority, quote-unquote, to the people around us. Different religious views that are present in our nation, and our community, but we do not esteem them all as valid and equal to Christianity. That's called relativism. Relativism is the idea that whatever you believe is fine for you, and whatever I believe is fine for me. Christians do not have the luxury of relativism. Christ said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So it's not okay for us as Christians to say, Christianity works for me, but whatever works for you, good for you. Scripture doesn't allow for that. Christ didn't allow for that. And yet we need to recognize that. We need to be respectful of that, but not to uh, honor or affirm these other beliefs. Our calling is to acknowledge and recognize these competing voices while staying faithful to the word of God. So we are set apart, we are different, because to paraphrase, treat again, if we are no different from the world, then we have nothing unique to say to the world. And uh, can I add that while our message may be offensive, our attitudes should not be. 1 Peter 3.15 says in part, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Let Christ be the stumbling block, not your attitude or your ego. Faithfulness then as sojourners and exiles and staying true to God's calling on our lives it's pursuing the good of where God has sent us, but with distinct set-apart values and beliefs and sharing the truth of God's word with gentleness and respect. This is how we share in the mission of God as ambassadors for his kingdom in exile. Let's pray. God, thank you again for calling us out of darkness into marvelous light. Jesus being the light of the world. In Christ, Jesus declares us light in the world. That we are salt, we are light. And that's why we have not been plucked out of this world the moment that we surrender by faith. But we are left here as ambassadors, as witnesses, as salt and light in a place that needs salt and light. We're surrounded by darkness, and you've called us to push back the darkness, not to, uh, not to hide, not to cower, not to just uh, hunker down until Jesus comes back, but to advance the kingdom, to pursue the kingdom, to live faithfully in exile. Because God, yes, you, you've, you've called us, you've set us apart, uh, and yet we don't know who else, who else has been, uh, is going to be there, who else is going to be there at the end. We, we don't get to decide that. So it's our job to, to bring people along with us, to share this gospel, to point them to Jesus, that you might draw more people to yourself, that the family of God might increase, that the kingdom of God would advance, that hearts and minds would be surrendered to Jesus. You give us the kingdom way, the, the not yet of the kingdom, so that we might live it, we might display it, so that others might get a sense of it, a, a taste of it, and realize as, as that light comes on, 
As the Holy Spirit convicts and, and gives faith to believe, God, that, that others would understand that they are in darkness and need to step into marvelous light, that, need, that you are calling them to faith. And so you have given us this testimony. You've given us this hope, this joy, and that we are to uh, give reason for it with gentleness and respect, with kindness. So God, may our understanding of your grace be uh, made increase, God, and may uh, our extending of your grace increase as well. God, that you've given us such a powerful, powerful testimony, such powerful truth of who we are in Christ sojourners and exiles until you call us home. Find us faithful, Lord. May we encourage each other until that day. And in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.